everyone would stand for the reading of the gospel. We'll be reading from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning to you all. We're up uh, on a mountain somewhere to the north of the Sea of Galilee, and we are in Jesus' most famous block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Gathered around him are these disciples, these people who have left their old lives behind, and they're now following Jesus. And they're learning what life in this kingdom of God this kingdom that Jesus has launched looks like. What is it when you decide to follow Jesus, what then comes next? What is entailed in following Jesus? There's this great line, you've probably heard it, it's usually attributed to Mark Twain that goes like this, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I understand that bother me, it is the parts that I do understand. There's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount that is very clear. It's, I think it's very easy to understand. And I think that's what makes it so troubling. Uh, we know what Jesus is asking of us. We just are troubled by it. We're not sure we want to actually do it. But I think, at least my experience, the passage in the Sermon on the Mount today has often genuinely confused me. Uh, in it, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So the law... Uh, we. We should, after just coming out of Exodus, we should be in a good place to, to know what the law is, those 600-plus commandments that Moses received up on Mount Sinai. Jesus says, don't get rid of any of those, which is confusing to me because it, it does seem like Jesus gets rid of them, that he does abolish them. For example, most of us, we eat pork, we eat shellfish, uh, which the Mosaic law says is a no-no. We wear uh, garments that are mixed fabrics, another no-no. Uh, we're not bringing animals uh, up here to be sacrificed, right? That would be really strange to us. It sure seems like there's a lot in the Mosaic Law that we're not following, that Jesus did get rid of. And it's important for us to realize when, when Jesus says the Law and the Prophets, what he's talking about is the whole Hebrew Bible. This would have been a shorthand for saying, you know what we call the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. Uh, when Jesus says the Law and the Prophets, he's really talking about all of that. And I, uh, if you're in the, the Bible reading plan with us in Midway, you know we're, uh, we're in Joshua. And I, I kind of want to raise my hand and say, 
What about Joshua? Can we discard Joshua? Um, you know, Joshua's very violent. <laughs> and if Joshua isn't very violent, if you keep reading, it kind of gets kind of boring, right? Unless you're into land surveys, uh, which I'm not as much into. I'm like, hey, Jesus, can we abolish Joshua? And Jesus' response is, when hell freezes over. That, that's how R.T. France, who's a, a world-renowned uh, uh, scholar of Matthew, puts it. And not like when uh, Don Henley said it, uh, back when they said the Eagles are never going to get together until Hell Freezes Over. And then, of course, they put out the 1994 album, Hell Freezes Over, right? right? Not Don Henley, not how he did it. Francis is saying when Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, what he's saying is it's never, never. It ain't going to never happen. No, not the Mosaic Law, not Joshua, not the prophets. In fact, what we know is Jesus says, not even the little, the tiniest little stroke on the tiniest little letter, that's not even going to go away. And again, it sure feels like, as followers of Jesus, that a lot has gone away. That what was, what was binding at one time for the people is no longer binding to us. So what's going on here? Well, look again at what Jesus says. He says this, I have not come to abolish them, the, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Okay? Jesus didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. He didn't come to, to discard it. He came to fulfill it. Think, let's think about that. What does that mean to fulfill the Old Testament? Well, this word fulfill means to fill. So let's think about this. Think about when you were a kid um, and you colored. Or if you colored now, that's great. That's no, no problem there. But, you know, your teacher would hand you this page and it would have all these outlines on it and you would take your crayons and you would, uh, you would start coloring uh, all these spaces there with color, and you fill it up. Like there's this pattern, and you fill it up with color. Okay? That paper is now being used as it was intended to be used. Or imagine um, an empty coffee mug. Okay? Like you've got a coffee mug, the structure's there, the form's there, but that coffee mug's not really doing what it was intended to do, is it? But if someone comes to you with a hot pot of coffee, and they pour that coffee into the mug... Now you can see that this mug is, is doing exactly what it was made to do, okay? It's got this firm, this solid structure to hold the liquid. It, it can take hot liquid. It's not going to melt. It's not going to become deformed. Uh, it has a handle, right? It's just perfect for drinking coffee. You can put it up to your lips, okay? There's a form. There's a pattern. And then when that's filled up with coffee, it begins to do exactly what it was made to do. And so Jesus is saying the law, the prophets, what we know as the Old Testament, there was a pattern laid out, and that pattern was just waiting to be fulfilled. Like just like the lines on that coloring page or that coffee mug, it was just waiting to be filled up. And just think with me for a second how, uh, what an audacious, self-important, self-referential, egotistical claim this is by Jesus whole story, it's about me. Okay? Beginning to end, the stories, the law, the prophets, the psalms, all pointing towards me. Imagine if I were to stand up this morning and say, you know, uh, this whole nation, the United States, the Constitution, uh, the laws, the dreams of our founding fathers, it was actually about me. You would likely and hopefully say, you have lost your mind. 
Which is why I side with C.S. Lewis and others who have made the point that we shouldn't be saying this nonsense about Jesus coming and acting to be this moral teacher. If Jesus says things like that, he is either a lunatic or Lord. This is important for a couple different reasons. This should affect how we read our Bibles. Okay, think about a novel that you've read several times. Okay? A really great novel that's so good that you want to go back and read it. As Scott McKnight points out, the more you read and reread that novel, the more you know that story, the more you're going to read it with the ending in mind, right? You're going to start at the beginning, but you know what's coming. You know the climax of that novel. Okay, you, you know now all these little characters and these little details, they're all moving to something. Okay, you understand what's in front of you better because you know where it's going. So, for example, in Exodus, which we just went through, uh, we can read the account of the Israelites being freed from slavery out of Egypt, and we can say we can, that's a good, correct reading of that. That's, that happened, that was the Israelites. But because we know where the story is headed, we have one eye on Exodus and one eye on Jesus, okay? Now we can say things like we did. You know, this, 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 sounds, um, this sounds a lot like my story, like our story. You know, people in bondage to sin and death, rescued by uh, our Lord Jesus, brought through the waters of baptism and becoming the people of God. So now we can read Exodus, realizing that Exodus is anticipating Jesus. So that's our profession, okay? So we read the Old Testament differently. We know where it's headed. It's headed to Jesus because he says, I'm the one that fulfills this. I'm the one this was all moving towards. I'm the main character of this story. But secondly, this is important because uh, this means that Jesus is in the best position to interpret the Old Testament law, to clarify what it means. Uh, go, go back to this absurd claim of mine that the entire history of the United States uh, is about me. Uh, you know, if that were true... I would be in the perfect position to go to Washington, D.C., to go to the courts and the legislators and say, I'm going to tell you what the original content of the intent of the Constitution is, right? I would know. If the whole story is about me, I'm the best person to interpret the American dream, the American laws, everything, because it's about me, right? This is what Jesus is saying. I, I'm the one. If anyone should be able to interpret Old Testament law, it's me because this story is about me. And what's going to happen, and this is really going to tee us up for what's going to happen in these next few weeks, is that we've got these six examples, these six cases, which are going to involve murder and adultery and divorce and revenge. And Jesus is going to illustrate six ways that the Pharisees and teachers in law have interpreted them. And then he's going to give his own interpretation. He's not going to discard them. He's going to give his own interpretation. Okay? So again, rather than contradicting the Old Testament, rather than abolishing the Old Testament, Jesus is going to give the true interpretation of the law. Why can Jesus do that? Because this whole story is about Jesus. Okay? Now, in light of that, Jesus is now, remember, he's, he's teaching his disciples. And now, as we kind of make this turn, Jesus is making this claim about himself, he's going to make a reasoning why these disciples should not be setting aside these commandments. If you put up the first slide, Ron, we'll look at this first again. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is another part that's a little bit confusing to me about this passage. It sounds like uh, in the kingdom of heaven, which is now and to come, 
there's these first-class and second-class citizens. Okay, first-class citizens are the ones, according to Jesus, who practice uh, Jesus' commands and they teach others to do the same. These are like the A students. Uh, and then there's the second-class students who, who set aside the commandments. Okay, they're, they're still in the kingdom, but they just like barely slipped into the kingdom. They're like D-minus students. They just barely made it into the kingdom. And I may be wrong. I think this is a hard passage to interpret. So here's my, uh, my best interpretation using uh, people that are smarter than I am. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. I don't think he's saying there's two classes of citizens. Because later on in his gospel, uh, he'll tell a parable about a, uh, the kingdom of heaven being like a landowner of a vineyard. And you probably know this story. There's this landowner, and he's hiring people throughout the day. Some people show up at really early, and he hires them, and then some at noon, and some at 5 o'clock just before the workday is over. Uh, and at the end of the day, Jesus pays them all the same wage. Do you remember that story? And uh, <laughs> does anybody know that story? All right, there's one for or two people. Um, and they're, like, they're upset. Are you, and the, and the, the landowner says, can I do what I want with my own money? Like, are you envious of my generosity? So I, I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, what I think is going on here is that Jesus is saying there's two kinds of disciples in this kingdom of mine that I'm establishing on earth. Okay, there's the first type that, is, that represents the king well, okay, and that one does what Jesus teaches and, and, and then passes those on to others. That one's called great. But then there's another type of disciple that does not represent the king well, and that is one that, that hears the teachings but either discards them and, and doesn't teach those to others. Okay, so one disciple is accurately representing their master and his plans. The other is not accurately representing their master. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this. Imagine you're a construction foreman. Okay, you're, in, you're in charge of a, a new construction pro project, and your boss, who's the construction supervisor, he gives you uh, these plans that have been drawn up uh, on how to build this new project. Okay, you're going to use these materials, you're going to build it this way, etc., and imagine you take those plans and you, you go to your crew then and you say, you know, some of these plans are really good. Some of them, eh, I'm not sure. Let's just drop those. Uh, you know, he, he said to use steel beams, but that seems a little overkill to me. Let's just use wood. Uh, you know, the boss said we need the, the concrete floor to be six inches thick. Let's go with four. That, that should be uh, fine. So what you do is you either start discarding the instructions from the boss or you you, you lower the bar, right? You, that, that seems a little intense. Let's just do it a little differently. Okay, if you do that as a foreman, you're not representing your supervisor well. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm not, I'm not here to destroy the Old Testament law. What I'm here to do is to give you the correct interpretation of the Old Testament law. I'm not asking you to give your own interpretation of my interpretation of the law because I'm pretty confident that my interpretation is right. Right? In other words, like, you don't need to be an editor to my, to my instructions. Like, I th I'm pretty sure they're, they're okay as they are. You want to be a faithful citizen in the kingdom of God, what you do is you put my commands into practice in your own life, and you teach others to do the same. And I think, I'll say for myself, I think this is harder than maybe we first think. Why, is this, why might this be hard? Well, right now, this is all pretty theoretical but Jesus is about to take us into the nitty-gritty. He's about to take us uh, really into uh, the guts of human existence. Anger, contempt, lust, divorce, lying, retaliation. One person said this is the stuff of soap operas. 
which it is. It's also the stuff of our own lives, right? Like if you're feeling like, ah, this is all just a bit theoretical today. This doesn't seem to apply to my life. Hang with me because we're about to move into some spaces that are going to hit close to home, right? Because we've been angry at our brothers and sisters. We have looked at women lustfully. We have divorced. We have lied. Like, if you're honest, we have failed to put many of Jesus' commands into practice. And not only that, I think many of us would say, I even say this as a pastor, we've been reluctant to, to, come, to, to pass those instructions on to others. You know, part of that might be because we, we feel like we're hypocrites. We've broken these commands ourselves, and so we, you know, what right do I have to tell someone to do this? Um, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're reluctant because we don't even think these are realistic to follow. You know, is Christian nonviolence really practical in today's world? You know, when, when Jesus says, uh, is going to say not to lust after a woman, did he realize one day that there would be uh, this little box in our pockets, I don't have mine, that if you want, you can have an endless stream of images of women available to you? Did, did Jesus know that when he gave this command? Is this really even possible? Or maybe... Maybe we want people to follow Jesus. We want them to give their lives to Jesus, to become his disciples. But we just, we want to remove any barrier that might be keeping them from Jesus. Okay, that, that might be a little bit challenging. So I'm not going to talk about that. We'll kind of lower the bar a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, you don't like that command of Jesus? Honestly, I think it's kind of intense too. Let's just set that aside for now. And I think Jesus is pretty clear before he's going to go into these teachings, that if we claim to be a disciple of Jesus, we're not at liberty to just discard the commands we don't like. Okay, Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to interpret the law for you in such a way that you have zero chance of following it. That's not good teaching. It's not good teaching to give instructions to people they can't follow. And I think Jesus is a really good teacher. In fact, I think Jesus is the best teacher. And so when we hear Jesus' teachings uh, and we decide to set aside those teachings, I think we're kind of like the kid who walks up uh, to the class and, and tells the teacher to sit down and says, I'll take it from here. Is there grace and forgiveness when we fail to obey Jesus? Absolutely. Okay? If not, every last one of us here is in trouble. But recognizing that we serve a forgiving and gracious God who is quick to forgive is very different than setting aside the commands that Jesus has given us and lowering the bar of what it means to be a disciple. The Russian author Leo Tolstoy, he, he says, imagine a person whose hands are weak. Imagine a person whose hands are shaky. And they, they're trying to draw a line between two points, okay? And he says, uh, in order to make that line easier, what you could do is you could, uh, they could get like a curved guide, right? The guide could go between those two points, and you could follow the curve or the broken guide. But Tolstoy says, the weaker my hand is, the more perfect my guide must be, right? If, I, if I, my hands are weak and my hands are weak, all the more I'm going to need a perfect guide to take me to those two points, so the first thing we learn, I think, in this passage is that Jesus is at the center of this story. He's at the center of the Bible. He's the one this is all about. He's the one that fulfills the law. Uh, this, he's the completion of this great story of Israel. Uh, and therefore, he is the one who can rightfully interpret the law. And so we look to Jesus on how to follow the law. 
But secondly, I think we learn that disciples of Jesus are not at liberty to decide uh, if we want to lower the bar of discipleship for ourselves or for others in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus expects obedience to his interpretation of the law. Let's, let's end here with what kind of obedience are we talking about? Let's look at the last verse in the passage. You can put that last slide up, Ron. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So at this point in the sermon, I would expect uh, that those gathered around Jesus, their jaws are probably starting to drop right now. Okay, imagine for the second the, the most holy person you know or have read about. Like, you know, think about uh, in martyrs, think about the martyrs and martyrs mere. Think about like Dirk William, Willems. He's the guy who, who famous story, escapes from prison. Uh, pursuers running after him over the ice. The pursuer falls into the ice. Dirk turns around and rescues the guy that's pursuing him and ends up uh, getting killed, ends up getting tortured and killed, okay? Mother Teresa, Jim Elliott, like your Sunday school teacher growing up. I don't know. Think about who is really holy in your mind. And then you hear Jesus say, you're going to have to live holier than them. I think that's probably how these disciples probably felt when Jesus said this, because when it, when it came to literal obedience to the rules and regulations, it would have been hard to find anyone who was doing it better than the scribes and Pharisees. Like, they were the best. They were the holiest. If anyone could follow the rules, it was these guys. It was the, it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And now Jesus is saying to them, hey, you want to be part of my kingdom? Your righteousness, your observance to the law is going to have to exceed theirs. Right? Again, Jesus, is, this is all teeing us up for what's coming next. He's going to give these six case studies, these six examples of how their righteousness of the followers of Jesus is going to have to exceed the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And each of these case studies on murder and adultery, divorce, retaliation, Jesus is going to show that in order to follow the true intent of those laws, a person is going to go, have to go beyond the literal observance of the law. Okay, so what we're going to see here, and we'll see it again and again uh, in these case studies, Jesus is going to kind of penetrate a deeper level, something that's deeper than just following laws or rules. And he's going to talk about a place where we are genuinely open now to the will of the Father in heaven. I think most of us kind of know this. We know that rules only take you so far. I'm sure we can think of people in our lives, I'm sure we've, many of us have been one of these people where uh, you keep all the rules or they keep all the rules and their hearts seem to us far from God, far from loving God and far from loving their neighbor or our neighbor. And I think usually my experience is that you want to typically move away from those people, right? Those are not the kind of people, uh, if someone's obsessed with laws and rules and following every little one, like mostly you don't want to be around that person. Because often you feel, like, really judged. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, you know, was not that person. Okay? The, the, all the people that are um, you're breaking all the Jewish rules, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Samaritans, they're always moving towards Jesus. They want to be close to him. And it's not because Jesus is saying those rules don't matter. Okay? Jesus is, like we said, we just looked about our second point. Jesus is very clear. Do not be chucking my commands. But Jesus is saying, rules are not enough. If you really want to keep my law, you're going to have to aim at something more than just being a rule follower. You're going to have to, as Dallas Willard says, be the kind of person from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. So think about an apple tree. What does an apple tree produce? It produces apples. 
Does an apple tree produce apples because it's following the rules? Does the apple tree say, you know, if I do this and this and I follow these rules, then I'm going to produce an apple? No. The apple tree produces apples because that's all the apple tree knows how to do. That's in its nature to produce apples. Apple trees can't help but make apples. I guess maybe unless they get frosted, right? That's not, that's not good. But, but they make apples because that's in their nature. And I think what Jesus is going to get at is he wants to transform us into the kinds of people for whom love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control, what the Apostle Paul will call the fruit of the Spirit, it's just going to flow naturally out of us. And producing that kind of fruit does not come just by following rules. It comes from a deep inner transformation. And I think that's what Jesus wants for his disciples. He wants us to be transformed on the very inside, our very nature to be transformed. How do we do that? How, do we, how, do we, how, do we, how are we transformed on the inside? I think it begins by submitting our lives fully to Jesus. Okay? We, we, we start to trust that Jesus really knows what he's talking about. We, we sit back down. We, we thought we could be the teacher for a while, and now we realize, no, that's not going to be a good place for us. And we go and sit back down, and we begin to listen to Jesus, what he says, that he actually means it, that he's not trying to set some bar for us that's impossible, that he actually wants us to put into practice what he's teaching us. We also, oh, so I think one of the most basic, you know, one of the things I've realized is that in my own journey of following Jesus, there's a lot of things now I realize that Jesus is teaching me and telling me that I didn't even realize when I first became a Christian. And I think that's true. Like, we, it's hard. There's a lot that goes into following Jesus. And there's a lot more that I'm sure I hope I will learn. It's not that we put into practice everything that Jesus does right when we put, become a Christian. But I think our responsibility is as we understand what Jesus is asking us, we start to put that into practice. I think that's what Jesus is holding us responsible for. If, you know, and that, the most basic thing you can do is look at our lives and how are we disobeying Jesus in ways that we know we're disobeying Jesus. Most of us have some sense in our life that we know Jesus is asking something of us and we've just decided not to do it. That's a good place to start. It can become overwhelming if we think about everything Jesus is asking. We are to grow into that as disciples. But a good place to start is just where am I willfully disobeying Jesus right now? Okay, that's where I start to work. Secondly, I think we've got to have the work of Jesus' Spirit in us. That is what transforms us. Another thing, as I hopefully get a little bit more mature in my walk with Jesus, I'm realizing is that there are things in myself that I don't like that I feel like the only chance to be transformed is for the Spirit of God to work on me. And I tell God, you know, this is a real challenge for me and I don't think I can do this just by being more disciplined, obeying more rules. I'm a pretty disciplined person. And I still realize that there's things not changing in me. And so I ask God, work in your spirit to transform me. And I would encourage you to do the same. This is not just about following rules. I don't want to lower that. I don't want to say rules don't matter. It's also got to be the spirit of God transforming you from the inside. Last thing I want to say here. Yeah. In our culture, obedience makes us nervous. Obedience really, really makes us nervous. We do not like obedience, which is a, this is a bad word in a lot of ways in our culture. Now, you might ask, why should I trust this guy? If I'm going to 
put into practice this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, why trust this guy? I think we do it, I think this is a good reminder, because of this audacious claim he makes. This whole story is about me. Okay? The whole Bible is about me. I mean, if I'm going to put my trust in one guy in the Bible, it's going to be Jesus. Because I believe the story is all about him. But I, I think it's even more than that. I think the whole story of creation is about Jesus. Jesus was there, as the book of Colossians say, when creation was first, when God first created the world. And I believe that Jesus will be there ushering in the new creation. When heaven and earth do not disappear, but heaven and earth actually become one. Who else would we trust other than that one? That is why we give our lives and obedience to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful story of Scripture, a story of so rich and so deep, so hopeful, and all revolves around Jesus. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the person of Jesus and shown us how we are to live. Lord, give us as individuals and as a congregation the courage to be faithful to what we know you're asking of us. Lord, we recognize we cannot do this alone. We need your spirit. So, Lord, I ask your spirit to be at work in us in a body and as individuals. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that this whole beautiful story is about him. And it's his name we pray.